Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the invitation from Pastors Bruce and Dory uh, to come and, and share with you tonight. And I'm really excited about um, what the Lord has given me uh, to, to talk about tonight. Um, so, so the title of, of my message tonight is A New Look at Discipleship. A New Look at Discipleship. And, and I know if you're like me, sometimes when you hear that word, it's like, I don't know, somehow it feels intimidating to me. <laughs> you know, I hear a message on discipleship, and I can, I can feel a little intimidated. And um, I think that just for me, sometimes the way it's presented seems like it's more than I can do. It seems like such a big job. Um, some people can really grab it and run with it, um, but I uh, tend to, you know, feel a little intimidated. So uh, the Lord gave me this this uh, message, and it's going to be out of First uh, Thessalonians chapter one, that uh, really helped me to feel better about it. It really, uh, the Lord spoke to me through this passage about discipleship in a way that was more easier for me to to feel like I could do it. You know, I could be a part of it. So um, as far as discipleship goes, I think the common verses that we hear, probably the Great Commission, right? Go into all the earth and, and preach the gospel and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we know that that's our calling as believers, that that's what we're to be doing. Um, and then the other verse that I hear a lot is um, 2 Timothy 2.2, which is a great verse, and it really talks about um, that kind of chain reaction of discipleship. And Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be able to teach um, others. So it's this chain reaction, and, and it's, such a powerful move of the Holy Spirit, really, that none of us would be sitting in this room today if it hadn't have been for that chain reaction happening over and over and over over the last 2,000 years, right? The, the disciples shared with people, and they imparted the, the gospel to them, and then those people were able to then teach others, and so it go, went on and on and on until whatever day it was that you first heard the gospel, and you became a believer. And then that chain reaction continues on through you. Um, so we're all here because of that. And we're all part of this process of discipleship, uh, really in two ways. Number one, you're a disciple. You are at some point in your journey of becoming more like Christ, of, of being becoming a disciple of Jesus. And then you're also called to make disciples. And for me, that's the part where I start to feel a little intimidated. Um, I'm just being honest, so I'm just sharing with you um, that, I, you know, a, a little confession that sometimes it makes me feel intimidated. And I think one of the reasons is, is the way that it's presented a lot of times is, you know, well, Jesus, you know, he was on the earth and he discipled 12 men. So you need to have your 12 disciples that you are solely responsible for discipling. And I would be like, okay, I might be able to find one or two. But, you know, to do that all by myself felt like such a big assignment. And I felt like, does anybody else feel like I'm not quite at the Jesus level yet? And that that is a big um, assignment for me. And I would feel a little intimidated. 
So I just have a question that I just with a show of hands. So how many of you, when you think about discipleship, you think of one person that is primarily responsible for discipling you? Anybody? So t- three or four hands. Okay, so... Um, and the reason I think that for me it was intimidating because I didn't have anybody like that. If somebody asked me that question, I wouldn't... Let's see, who would that one person be? It wasn't like, if you had that experience in your life, that one person, you think of them right away. You know who it is. Um, but how many of you, maybe like me, and so, so what, what would happen is I would, I would begin to feel sorry for myself. Like, how can I be expected to do that? No one ever discipled me. And how can I ever be expected to do this? And it would be like this woe is me. Um, but the Lord really began to convict me, and he said, you know, you didn't have one person, you had a team of people. He said, I sent a team of people to disciple you, and he began to remind me of all the people in my life. That Sunday school teacher I had when I was growing up who, her faith so inspired me. She was a single mother, and she would just tell these testimonies of her faith in God, and I was just like, I want to have faith like her. I want to have faith like her. So there's um, Mrs. Rucker, and her daughter is still a friend of our family today. Um, and then there was the woman who, one of my mom's friends, Kathy, who when I was a teenager and I went through a really dark time of depression and questioning God and, and just uh, you know a lot of oppression, she prayed me through. She was there. I could call her anytime, and she never was bothered by me. She had the gift of mercy which she needed for me at that time. (laughs) And she was never bothered by me. She would pray me through. She would say, I'm fasting for you today. I mean, she really got me through a a real oppression of the enemy in a real dark time. And then there's all the the pastors I've had in my life. And the, the, you know, I've had an army of people. So the Lord really opened my eyes that, you know, stop feeling sorry for yourself. You had an army of people that um, worked together to get you to the point in the journey that you're on right now, and I still have a long way to go on my journey, and there's going to be more people ahead, I know. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, um, in First Thessalonians, uh, this new look at discipleship. So let me find it in my Bible. You'd think I would have marked it, knowing that I was going to uh, speak on this. So First Thessalonians chapter 1. And um, so let's just, first of all, I want to give a definition of discipleship, because a lot of times I kind of grapple with the word. It's a big word for me. I don't, um, but for me, this is the definition that I'm going to use, because it makes sense to me. Discipleship is a transformation that produces enduring fruit. A transformation that produces enduring fruit. You know, sometimes we, you know, we get caught up in the, the details, right? It's, did you, did you attend the, the new believers class? Did you, did you go to, you know, the Bible classes you needed to go? Did you check the boxes? Did you do all these things? Um, but those are just tools, really, in the discipleship process. Really, what we're looking for is that enduring fruit of, of the Holy Spirit in our life. And um, the verse, 1 Corinthians 13, now these three remain. So these are things that remain. They endure. 
Paul, after Paul has talked about all the things that are going to pass away, he said there's some things that are going to endure, they're going to remain, and these are faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So that is my definition of discipleship, and we're going to get back to those three enduring things in just a minute. So would you mind if I just read, it's not a very long chapter, I'm just going to read 1 Thessalonians. It says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember you before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia, but became known everywhere. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So this is the introduction that, you know, this letter is, I think, five chapters long. And so this is Paul introducing. So I want to give you a little bit of background about this church. So Paul, with Silas, together with Silas, planted this church um, very, very quickly. I mean, it's amazing when you read that report of how well they're doing that Paul spent three weeks with these people. Three weeks. Can you imagine? He came into the city, and it says he, for three Sabbaths, he preached in the synagogue from the scriptures, arguing that Jesus was the Christ and, and preaching the gospel. And then the Jews who were pursuing him because of their jealousy um, actually, you know, have you heard of Rena mob? That's what they did. They, they found a mob of people to form a riot. And, um, you know, the whole city was, says, was turned into turmoil. And they took the guy that they were staying with and they took him in, you know, before the judge. And so the, so the believers in that city um, snuck Paul and Silas out in the middle of the night, basically. Um, so three weeks he was there. But yet it says that uh, many people came to believe. There were Jews, uh, God-fearing Greeks, and, and it says not a few God-fearing, uh, not a few prominent women. So there was a good cell of people that became believers in that three weeks. But can you imagine planning a church like that? Just three weeks, and then you've got to just escape the city. So in Paul's heart, he has this passion for these people. He is deeply concerned. He's like, man, I hope they're okay. I hope they're not losing their faith. I hope they're, um, they're doing okay. And so that's what prompts him to write this letter. And then later he sends Timothy. 
But what struck me right away was it says Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And I thought, wait a minute, they're not doing it by themselves. It's not one guy doing it by himself. It's three people together. And all of a sudden, I sighed this huge sigh of relief. <laughs> like, oh, it's a team. Discipleship is a team. They're working together. And um, I noticed in, in, the ch- in this book, and particularly in the first two chapters, which is what we're really going to be focusing on, that Paul uses the pronoun, pronoun I only once. He uses the pronouns we and are a total of 31 times. So in this epistle, Paul, the great apostle Paul, is the humble member of a disciple-making team. He's the member of a team. So I want to talk to you about three keys to making disciples as a team. Now, does that... Now, if you're like me, that sounds a lot more like I could do it than I'm solely responsible for 12 people and making sure they become mighty apostles, (laughs) you know, a member of a team. So then I think, okay, wow, I, I could do that. I could be part of a team. I could work with others, and I could make this happen. And how many of you know, you know, there are a lot of people that that need Jesus in this city. You guys know that. I know you're praying for him. I know you're reaching out. I don't know. Do you guys do the prayer of three here? So we do this in our small groups at Gateway. We have the prayer of three. So in whenever we meet in a small group, we have our three primary number top three people that we want to see come to the Lord. And we make that a part of our prayer in the small group is to pray for those people that we would have an opportunity to share with them, that they would come to our small group or to church with us. And so that's really our way that we're really uh, focusing on the lost is uh, praying for our prayer of three. And we've seen God do some really great things. Um, but there are people that need Jesus. And, and, you know, discipleship doesn't start when someone gets saved. Discipleship starts when you first tell them about Jesus and when you first start praying for them, that's the beginning. They're now on their journey. And because by faith we believe that they are going to become a disciple, they're going to become a believer, that that's part of their discipleship journey. They're learning about Jesus, right? They're already learning about Jesus, even though they haven't said yes to him yet. They're learning about him. So we're their teachers, right? We're their examples. We're those that are encouraging them. So three keys to making disciples as a team. Number one, and I'm telling you, these are all things you guys can do. (laughs) They're all things you guys can do. Number one, commend signs of growth with gratitude. Commend signs of growth with gratitude. Um, He starts out, he says, he says, we know that you're chosen. He says, we know that you've been chosen. And then he goes on to to comment on some of these signs of them being disciples. So I want to go over those with you um, right now. So in verses 2 through 3, he says, We always thank God for all of you continually and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your number one work produced by faith. Work produced by faith. So... He says, there's a work that is being produced by your faith. It's not just a confessional faith. 
It's not just saying, I believe. But there's an activity with it. There's action. He says that there's actual real living faith, an active faith. Now, remember what James says. He says, faith without works is dead. So he says, I don't know what you guys are talking. This is what James is saying. I don't know what you guys are talking about. I've never seen any such thing as faith without works. I don't know what you're talking about. Because <laughs> I know the faith that I have produces action. It produces um, activity, right? Serving in your church, sharing with your friends, um, being obedient to the Lord, uh, reading his word. That You know, there's actions that come. If we just only say, I believe in Jesus, but nothing in our life ever changes, then that's a faith that James says, I don't recognize. You know, he's not saying that that faith is by works, but he's saying they always go together. So an active faith. He said, you're, he says, I thank God for your work produced by faith. So when we're, um, you know, ministering to people or even encouraging them to become believers in Jesus or, um, you know, in our small groups, however it is, in our community, in our classes that we're teaching, Whenever we see a faith that works, we need to say something. And if I'm, say, say that Pastor Dory is working with somebody that she's discipling. I mean, she's pouring hours into them. She's really working hard. And they come to my class. So when I see that faith that works, you know, that, that active faith, not only should I tell that believer, but I should tell Pastor Dory. Say, oh, so-and-so is, you know, they're doing so great. I see active faith. So we commend that active faith when we see it. The second thing, it says your labor prompted by love. So a love that labors. That word there for labors is kapos. And it means intense labor united, sorry, I have to say this part, with trouble and toil. Sorry, I had to say that, but that's what it is. Intense labor united with trouble and toil. Its use is almost always associated with the spread of the gospel and frequently with team effort. A hard-working love. A hard-working love. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced a non-hard-working love, and that is a love that just is there until things get tough. But this is a different kind of love. It's a hard-working love. It's that love that goes the extra mile. It's that love that, that is willing to do that labor. Um, you know, sometimes it's a labor in prayer. Sometimes it's calling somebody every day. Sometimes it's encouraging people when, you know, they're going through a hard time. You know, we all go through our, our seasons, right, where we struggle. And in that time, just like my friend, my mom's friend Kathy, that was a hard-working love. She was praying for me. She was fasting for me. I could call her and be in tears, and she would pray for me, and I could call her 15 15 minutes later because I felt good for like 15 minutes, and then I needed her to pray for me again. And she she didn't get tired of me. If she did, she didn't say anything. That's what, that is a hardworking love. That is a hardworking love. Um, You know, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 3, 7 through 9, says, So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, 
that they should each be rewarded according to their own labor, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field and God's building. So I think one of the other reasons why I felt intimidated by, you know, me having to have 12 disciples, and, you know, if that works, that's great. I just, for me, it was intimidating, was that, you know, it felt like, you know, I was kind of gathering my own to myself, and, and um, that just felt really weird to me. I even had someone come to me once and say, well, who are your, who are your 12 people? And I said, well, these are the people I'm, are in my class, and these are the people I'm in my small group, and, well, would they call you their leader? And I said, well, I don't know if they'd call me their one leader, but, <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, I mean, I, I have influence in their lives, but, you know, and I just felt so intimidated. But here what I'm saying is that it doesn't matter if I'm watering or planting, that God's the one who's making it grow. And so if one of you plants a seed and then I get to water it, it doesn't matter that, that, that we're not going to say that's your disciple or my disciple. That's God's disciple, right? And we're all doing our part. We're all participating. And then the third thing that he commends them for he says, is your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ? So hope that endures. Now, these people were facing in this town the same persecution that Paul faced that he had to escape. So they're under some intense persecution in this town, in Thessalonica. Um, so he's commending them. He's saying, I know what you're going through. I understand the hope that endures. They were facing that persecution, a patient, enduring hope. That's what we, when we see that in someone, that is a sign of that they have faith in Jesus. That is a sign um, because really our hope is one of the things that sets us apart, that we have hope in Jesus. We don't, um, you know, we go through the same kind of trials a lot of times that the world experiences, but we have a hope. We have a hope. So when we see that in a young believer or in somebody we're working with or just in a member of the church, we commend that. You know, we commend that. And that is um, commend signs of growth with gratitude. And then there's one more thing. So if all these three things are working together, um, if, the dis- if we're seeing work prompted, produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope, then there's one other thing that is just going to automatically happen. And that comes in verse 8 where it says, the Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. So when those, uh, those enduring traits of uh, faith, hope, and love are working in our lives, um, then the message of Christ is going to ring out. And that's the fourth thing that he's commending in them, that the message is ringing out from you. And so they're doing it. They're in the discipleship process. This baby church that had three weeks with the Apostle Paul, um, they're doing it. He's getting reports about them, that the message of of Christ is ringing out. So I just want to look a little bit further on what did this team, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, what did they do to produce such amazing results? I'm curious. So... We're going to go into chapter 2 a little bit. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but um, we're just going to pick a few things out. Um, What did they do? So the second key to making disciples as a team is continually allow God to test 
your heart. Continually allow God to test your heart. And this comes from chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. It says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. So that uh, that phrase there, to test, who tests our hearts, actually means to scrutinize. Now, I don't like to be scrutinized. Maybe that's just me, but I think I'm pretty sure all of you are like, you know, that's not like something I would say. What? I just would love to be scrutinized today. I think, you know, we would probably avoid it if we could, right? But that's what it means. Allow God who tests our hearts. So to be an effective team player, my heart must continually be under the microscope. Now notice that it didn't say to test your neighbor's heart. It didn't say, you know, um, you know, and this is not a ministry, by the way, to test Pastor and Dory, Dory and Bruce's hearts. Because some people, you know, that's their ministry, right? Is they, they come sent to be the scrutinizers of the pastor's hearts. It says te- to test your own heart. Now, I guarantee you, if you are on a team that tests each other's hearts, that there's going to be some relational problems on that team. But if you're on a team where everybody is super focused on testing their own heart, then that is going to be a smooth working team. If we are all just testing our hearts, saying, God, I want to know if there's any, is there anything that is not right in my heart? I want to know. So there's a couple things that that Paul t- that they talk about here that they're testing. So let's just go over those. Number one, doctrine. So in verses three and four, he says, "For our appeal does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. So we need to be testing our the doc you know our our doctrine, right? We need to be our message needs to be continually offered under the microscope to God. I don't want there to be any error in what I'm saying. And if there is, I want somebody to come and say to me, you know, what you said was a little little off because because I don't want to go there. I don't want to I don't want to go into error. I want to be so I'm I'm testing my own heart, but then I'm also trusting those that are over me to point out to me if there's any error and I need to be at a place where I say, "Okay, Instead of, well, who are you to tell me? You know, then, then guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to continue on in that air if that's my attitude. So we have to be allowing the doctrine to be tested. Um, and the second one is motive. In verses 3 and 5, he, he talks about motive. He said, we didn't use trickery, flattery, falsehood, or greed. Um, so the motive of my heart is super huge, super important to the Lord. Why am I doing it? It, He says, um, let's see, we are not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. 
So if I'm looking for praise from men, then that's a sign that I have an impure motive. I just want, you know, we all want to be encouraged, and we all want someone to say you did a good job, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about I need approval from people um, in order to be doing the things that God wants me to do. So we have to let our motive be constantly under the microscope. God-pleasing versus people-pleasing. I'm going to do what God asks me to do, and if nobody notices, you know, um, I'm going to still do what God asks me to do. Um, and that's that's a heart attitude that we all want to have. And then he talks in verses 6 and 7 about our leadership. In 6 and 7, he says, um, We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you. We were gentle among you. So our leadership needs to be humble, not authoritarian. You know, it's... People love to follow a humble leader. People love that, but most of us don't like an authoritarian leader that's always constantly correcting us and telling us what we're doing wrong. And I notice that Paul starts out telling them all the things they're doing right. Now, it's not because they don't have areas that need correction. You know, he does say later on in verse 3, uh, in chapter 3, he says, I long to be with you so that I can supply what is lacking in your faith. So there's stuff they need. I mean, they've got, you know, they're not perfect. But he starts out telling them everything they're doing right. He doesn't come in, well, here's what you're doing wrong, this, 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 and this. He comes in with a humble leadership. He comes in with a humble attitude. Okay, and now the third thing. So the first thing we said was we want to commend signs of growth with gratitude. When we see that faith, hope, and love working, we want to we want to point that out. We want to say, yay, you're doing great. And we do that all together. Um, it doesn't matter whose small group someone's in. It doesn't matter, you know, who's the person that led them to the Lord. We're, we're doing that as a team. And then we, we let the Lord continually scrutinize our heart. That It's not always fun, but, wow, it's so powerful when we allow him to do that. And then number three is we need to love like parents. Love like parents. So in chapter 2, verses 7 through 12, I'll just read this passage. It says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are our witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among those who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his glory glory into his kingdom and glory. So this is a godlike love. This is the parental love of God, not not our own flawed version, you know. Um it's godlike love. And did you notice that he puts in there the attributes of a mother and a father? Now he doesn't say, you know, we you know, we're three men and we we came in like a father and we let the women mother you. No, he didn't say that. He says, just like a nursing mother cares for her children, 
so we cared for you. So he doesn't separate it out into gender you know, roles and assignments. He says he, they were like a mother and they were like a father. Um, he embraced both roles, those parenting roles. And, you know, parenting is, is a team, right? I mean, God graces parents to do it as a single parent, as a mother or a father. But in the perfect design, he designed it to be done by a team, right? So we parent, we love like parents. Cooperative teamwork, not gender discriminant. You know, we need to have that, that nurturing nurturing attitude of a mother and a father. Amen? If you would like prayer, if you just feel like, you know, maybe one of those things really stood out to you that, wow, I really, I feel like I could grow in in one of those areas, um, then, you know, come up and, and receive prayer. Or if you just feel like maybe even something is missing in what you need from the Lord, Whatever it is, but um, I just want to invite you up to prayer and encourage you that um, you can do this thing of discipleship. (laughs) Um, You can do it, and we're going to do it all together. Amen? So let me just pray. Let's pray all together. Lord, I just thank you for your word, Father, and I thank you for your encouragement, um, the encouragement of your word that... um, We're in this together, God, and we can work together as a team to disciple, Lord, and you can help us, Lord. I just pray that you would open our eyes to see those things in one another, and especially in the younger believers that that, um, are growing up in in our midst, that we would see that faith, and we would point it out when we see it. We would see the love and point it out when we see it and be a voice of encouragement first, before we try to correct anything, Lord, that we would encourage, um, that we would point out those things, Lord, and that you would give us the heart of a mother and a father, um, and that you would help us to humbly submit our heart to you uh, for your testing and your scrutiny. In Jesus' name, amen.